Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? The sun is shining today. I know. It's April, everybody. There's a spring in our step. I am delighted about spring when it comes every year. I don't know about you, but I've had enough. Certainly by April, March for sure, but by April I'm ready. And we always get a bit of summer in April in Scotland, don't we? Yeah, I I love a bit of daffodils as well. I love seeing the daffs out in the parks and in the open spaces and, you know, it's a bit of cheery yellow. And we have so much to be excited about this month. We have so much going on. Yeah, we'll be exhausted by the time we we get to May, but this month we are starting out five new pilot sessions in shared reading and five new pilot sessions in creative writing. So we're trying out lots of different locations, which you'll be able to find out about on social media. And hopefully they'll be coming, if we don't have a session near you, hopefully one of them will land somewhere near you and you'll be able to join in. And we've also got a conference to look forward to at the end of the month. It's just a way for us to get all our lead readers and volunteers who help facilitate our groups across the whole country together in one place to share ideas and do a bit of training. It's just just a really lovely time to catch up with people that we we do hear from, but usually in a very functional email way, it's, it's a bit of a more social occasion. This month, we have got a terrific story by Diz Tate called Story in Nine Rooms. And then we've got a poem from one of our favorite poets, Claire Askew. Should we just get cracking into the story? Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. How many parts is it in? Nine, I think. Okay, well, I'm going to read us the first five. I'm going to read the numbers out loud so you'll know as a listener where we are in the story. And then um, I'll stop about halfway through and we'll have a chat as usual. A Story in Nine Rooms. One. You begin in the lovely oval room, the red walls carved and smooth and swift as marble. It is dark, the walls pulse, the strong heartbeat above is almost oppressive. When do you first hear it and think, I wish they'd shut that off? Is it when you hear those other soft offerings Shadow sounds cast quickly around in some wider world. The sounds are tempting, but you are scared. You wrap yourself in ropes so tight that when you are evicted, it is forceful and hands cleave you free. Your mother hears no scream of protest. She is asleep in her own dark, doorless room. She wakes up eventually and holds you, but in some ways she will always be locked to you. You will spend your life sneaking close to her room, knocking, manipulating, wishing only to invade. You want to shine a light into every mystery of your mother, puncture each one with light until her secrets are nothing but trinkets. Desire is so ancient, they are meaningless could belong to anyone, even you. Two. Your next home is a small, cozy bed. A bed you have to be tricked into every night by your mother. A bed with bars. And perhaps the first feeling you remember is clutching those bars and believing things would be better if you could climb over them into the possibilities of the room beyond. 
You always want to be awake. Opening a door you are too small to open. Three. You share a room with your brother. He is quiet during the day, but when it is dark, he very seriously asks you to hold a torch from the top bunk. You encircle him carefully in light while he mimes Frank Sinatra and your parents sleep as distant and oblivious as your neighbors next door. Four. And then your brother moves. First to the other side of the room and then beyond the wall. And somehow in this move you are unbound from each other, separated as though you had once been conjoined. Five. You live in a yellow room, a blue room, a pink room. You are obsessed with the names of paint samples at the DIY store, and you slip them into your pockets like a thief. Silent purple, silver dollar, breeze blue. Each color seems to promise the possibility of a new life, a new room. But you learn your choice does not matter because every color is the same in the dark. You have learned enough words that the unfamiliar voices on the radio, on the television, begin to coalesce into stories you recognize. You realize fairy tales are pretty tricks that have already taught you horror. And you begin to understand the word stranger and the word trust and the meaning behind your mother's words. Do not answer the door when we are out. Never go near a man who says he has candy. You live in a bungalow and you go scared of the dark, even though you're a big girl, no longer a child. Your mother tells you to stay in your room. You lay awake at night, listening for movement at the window, and even in your dreams, you cannot leave the room. When you open the door, ready to run, there are bars or a giant hand spilling candy above your head like a terrifying, tempting, Pinata. Should we stop there? Gosh, loads in that first section. I know. And as I was reading it, it felt like poetry to me in some ways. I don't know whether it's musicality or there's a, it's the way of writing, but it feels like it could be broken into poems. So it took me a little while to work out in that number one where she was. I don't know about you. I, it yeah. took me about halfway through it to realize that it wasn't a room at all. Exactly. But the heartbeat didn't give it away for me in the, in the second line. It was only when I got towards the end of that section that I realized what that first room was. As a mum, the lore is always that, you know, your heartbeat when you're carrying a child is a lulling, comforting sound or whatever. But it's possible that, you know, your unborn child is thinking, oh, for goodness sake, be quiet, I'm trying to get some rest. So I thought that was actually almost a bit funny. Um, and I think that was partly why I was slightly disarmed at the beginning. I wasn't sure that that's where we were because it's such an adult thing to think. But of course, unborn children knew, have their own views about things. It just takes them quite a long time to be able to tell us what they are. And then the rest of that, the bit towards Towards the end of one, I love that image of, you know, wanting as a child or certainly as a girl child to know all your mother's secrets. I definitely did, you know, and, and I'd forgotten that sensation of like wanting to demystify your parents, feeling like you know everything about them. In the same way, I guess, as parents, we feel like we know everything about our children and boy, we couldn't be more wrong about that. But it had never occurred to me, I didn't know everything about my mother. And I think as well in that, that sort of reference to trinkets really emphasizes that because I think as a young child, it's wanting to know, you know what's in your mum's makeup drawer, mm. what's in her jewelry 
jewellery drawer, what's in our jewellery box. Those are the things you want to know. But as you get older, you actually sort of start to see your parents as people and not just extensions of yourself. I remember quite clearly realising that my mum had another name and it wasn't just mum. I remember, you know, being somewhere and someone called her Alice and thinking, who's Alice? (laughs) And then it's slowly dawning on me that that was my mum's name. But then I love that idea of the little, the number two, the little bed. That's your next home. Yeah, I I caught, I thought, with the the bed with bars. Hmm. I I just remember, you know, when my children were little, going into the room when they'd woken up and they are standing, clutching those bars, waiting for you to lift them out. And wanting to be, I love that her description of it, that... You know, you always want to be awake. It's true of children that age. They just resist sleep because, you know, as adults now, we're like, oh, thank God we get to sleep. But actually, they just don't want to miss anything. Yeah. And then that idea of, you know, sharing a room with your brother. I have that very early on and then missing him. And I get the sense that she is. Yeah. I love that image of her on the top bunk with the torch because we had bunk, I had bunk beds shared with my sister and we had a torch in case one of us needed to use the loo in the middle of the night and you didn't have to switch on the light. You could just use the torch to come down the stairs. But I love that idea of, you know, you're the stage manager on the top, <laughs> putting the spotlight <laughs> on the Frank Sinatra. I would say it was an accessory to a crime. <laughs> <laughs> and then this lovely, I mean, of course, you know, Never go near a man who says he has candy. It's funny, I used to say that to the kids and then I upgraded it to like an iPad or a puppy. And I still say it to my teenagers, you know, when they go out, like, don't get in a car, even if they offer you an iPad and they'll, you know, retort back, does that mean you're giving me an iPad (laughs) or whatever? It says more, I think, that that sort of section because it feels like it's about, you know, the warnings that you give as a parent turning into something so much bigger. You know, the things, whatever we, the seeds we plant, in the brains of small people or anyone really, but certainly the small people that trust us so often become things that they worry about more, I'd say, you know, as an adult, rightly or wrongly. So I think still as an adult, lots of the things that I worry about will be the things that my mum, you know, and not always always my mum and not my dad, you know, would kind of warn me off of with a horror story of some kind or, you know, some tale. My dad was a journalist, so he used to report on the most bizarre things that happened. So I had like a whole load of random fears from childhood just simply because my dad had had to go and cover a story for his news. I mean, one that really sticks with me and that I remember being paranoid about with my own children was not to bounce on the bed. Now, that's part of the fun of being a kid is bouncing on your bed. But my dad had to go and do a story about a child that had bounced on her bed, fallen off and broken their back. So we were never allowed to bounce on beds because of that. The fears that are implanted as seeds as a child, you carry them with you into adulthood. You know, cautionary tale. I was bouncing on a bed and broke, broke my nose. So yeah, my kids weren't allowed to bounce on the bed either. But yeah, and my mum was a accident and emergency nurse for a long time. So some of the stuff she saw was just awful. And I don't know whether it was rightly or wrongly, but you know, some of the stuff about drug use and other things, she made no bones about telling us all those awful stories. And they worked, you know, we were terrified of, you know, one small thing and then 
whether I don't drug use is a different thing, but you know, kind of driving too fast or whatever. I mean, I, I will say it was not the case that I, I was always in the speed limit as a teenager, obviously, but you know, they worked, you know, whatever she said, oh, be careful with this, you know, it would stick, those stories would stick. And I guess this part feels like that, you know, that you then lay awake at night and and it is true that your worries, because you know, they grow in proportion that like the idea of a big hand spilling candy. Yeah, that's you know, a terrifying is, image becoming terrifying yeah and it's exactly the way dreams work isn't it you know at night something that doesn't seem too bad during the day suddenly at night you can take on huge proportions it's a good cautionary tale to some of us to you know think about what we think about when we go to bed but also or try and block stuff off but also be careful what we tell the people around us i think i feel like we should read on and see what happens okay shall i continue yeah thanks you start spending as much time as possible in other girls beds You discover that drinking makes you less afraid of being kidnapped and you love to sleep beside someone. You are full of an all-encompassing joy that you have not felt since your brother moved beyond the wall. You are finally no longer lonely. You and the girls you fall in love with grow wild with your power, your cohesion, your endless discovery of each other. You groom each other like monkeys. You care about every hair in the other's eyebrows, plucking them fiercely until you almost make each other ugly, but you do not admit this. You always, always call each other beautiful. Your bedrooms are messy with each other's discarded clothes, smudges the colour of skin on every surface. You cover yourself in the scent of dead flowers and dance wildly. But when you're beyond your rooms, you are so careful with your movements that you barely move at all. You raise your non-existent eyebrows, roll your eyes, speak in whispers, because you like the way it brings people close to you. So close, you could almost kiss them. But you do not. 7. Leave your childhood bedroom and live in a series of dark and dirt-lined rooms where mice scratch inside the walls. Burn a hole in your single bed because once you are drunk and leave your hairdryer on beneath your sheets like a heater. Bring boys up to your bedroom and present the hole like a museum exhibit. Laugh maniacally. Some boys, the kind who were loved by their mothers, look concerned. Others, the ones you like, laugh with you and then leave before the light hits the window. You do not mind. You are insatiable for bodies and all the strange things they say and do. Nothing hurts you because you are too curious to be hurt. You do things so you can talk to girls about them while eating toast. And when there is no boy to bring to your bed, you find the nearest girls to get into and giggle your way into sleep. 8. Fall in love with a boy who admires the whole then goes with you to buy a new mattress. He says one word for every dozen of yours, and he says them slowly while you are always rushing along, throwing your words out like apple cores from a car window. Spend every night together, perform a choreography of sleep, a ballet of intertwining. Wake with a happiness inside your heart that can only lend itself to metaphors that belong in children's books, hot air balloons. Yellow suns in sunglasses. You cannot believe how lucky you are to have this body beside you, the only effective resistance you have ever found against bad thoughts. 
all you have ever wanted is to be close to something undeniably alive when night falls, when the dark emphasises the wardrobe's deadness, the side table's deadness, the lamp's deadness, the book's deadness. Everything dead except the quick, quiet spiders you imagine are waiting to crawl down your throat. You are so warm that you grow hot and start to sweat. You feel like you are baking, rising up like a sweet, soft cake. You have never believed in or wanted softness or sweetness. At a restaurant you once worked in, they reused the leftover dollops of butter from people's bread baskets to bake the daily cakes. One day in summer, a cake was cut for a child's birthday, a pink monstrosity of sprinkles and meringue, and in the first exquisite slice, there was a perfectly preserved cigarette butt in the top sponge layer. You remember the crying child, the image of the cigarette bleeding ash into a layer of jam and cream, how hard it was to hold your laughter in until after the shift, when you and your co-workers drank beers until the sun rose. All anyone had to do was light a cigarette for you all to lose it again with laughter. It was such a true thing, in the way a joke has to be true to be funny, and has to be both ugly and beautiful to be true. You stop sleeping. You love the boy, but for the first time in your life you wish you were away from his aliveness, held only your own close. You think of the oppressive heartbeat in the very first room, your mother. You are terrified. You hear the old kidnapper noises at the window, at the door. And even though you're scared, you almost want them to enter so you could lift the dead lamp and smash it down into pieces, dividing one day irreversibly from the next. Nine. You are alone in a single bed. Everything is broken and you do not know how to fix anything. The light bulb sputters, dims. The sink in the bathroom drips. You collect paint samples and smudge the walls with a hundred possible colours. The walls are thin and all around you can hear the faint sounds of life, of people moving and stretching and breathing and holding on to each other tight. You have spent your whole life trying not to be alone. Outside of the open window, a fat pigeon sits on a telephone wire, its eye a black bead, and you watch it, carefully imagining its frantic, tiny, precious heart. You laugh loudly, thrilled to observe without distraction, and immediately startle the bird away beyond your reach. Oh, wow, that's a big one. I love that description of young girls and, you know, the maniac laughing or them, the way of calling, you know, how girls, young girls, I guess, because I've got two in the house, you know, are so different when they're with each other on their own than they are with the outside world. I recognize that from my own life as a girl, but, you know, I definitely recognize it in my girls too. Lots of laughing and lots of giggling and lots of things they would never do in public. But that idea of being careful with your movements and being more restricted, um, I I really recognize in teenage girls. That idea of always having to say that something looks good or is beautiful or whatever, even even though 
quite often it's not the eyebrow issue there the, the mutual support like you would never do someone down if they think they look good or that they like what they're wearing or whatever as, as a teenage girl then you're 100% behind them for that I mean I'm sure that's into adulthood too you know I think you know if a friend's wearing something there's no way and says oh I'm not sure about this there's no way any woman would say anything other than don't be ridiculous that looks great and then we move away from home into those student bedrooms that I've certainly lived in yeah and that funny thing of burning a hole in your bed you know I remember doing that with a curling iron or something which unfortunately I sat on as well I love that description of boys you know the ones who are close to their mums know enough to be worried or I think that's because we're mums of boys (laughs) (laughs) I think that's why we love that yeah or the ones that are slightly softer you know and not so hardened But there is that thing of, you know, young girls finding, you know, anyone of the, you know, maybe it isn't the opposite sex, anyone basically who is um, slightly mysterious uh, and less open or less warm, more intriguing somehow. You might go for someone that you don't understand rather than something that you see and recognize. And that idea at the end of that section seven as well, where you go back to eating toast and laughing and talking with the girls. Because I think at, uh, at that age, you're still putting on a bit of a show for the boys. You're still not wholly relaxed. You're not necessarily entirely yourself. I was just going to say, you know, I know we're both women, so it makes it harder to talk about what men are like. But I think even at this age, you know, if you've got a good group of women friends, there's still some truth to that sentiment of like, yeah, okay, but when you're with your your girlfriends, probably not with toast anymore, but with a glass of wine or a cup of tea, That's where it all kind of various things kind of hang out, as it were, you know, things get discussed in those kind of circles that often don't get discussed at home. So I'm not sure that that always changes if you've had the right kind of friends in your life. I think if you've not learned to be careful or had to learn to be careful, I think at our age, we're, you know, if you're lucky, you still have that. A few weeks ago, I was at Stanza and with friends and, you know, laughing so hard in the street with a friend that, you know, I literally thought I might be sick. I was laughing so hard. I don't even, I don't remember what we were laughing at, you know, and we we hadn't had anything to drink or anything. It was just like that proper giggling. And, uh, you know, so it does, it still happens. It doesn't happen as often because we don't have as much time, but you know, it does happen all the time. Women's way of, you know, laughter turning into more laughter, turning into more laughter, which is a real joy still. But I'm not sure boys do that in the same way. Maybe they do with beers or something. I'm not really sure. But then, you know, in, in eight, she falls in love with a boy and that kind of, I recognize, it's a beautiful way of writing about that first time of really being in love with someone or, I'm not sure if you'd call it love, but, you know, that nearness, that proximity, that comfort uh, of a physical presence of someone else. And I love that idea of one word for every dozen, her throwing her words out like apple cores from a car window. I really recognize that. I worry for her as a mum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I... I but I still think if I think of my male friends, they're all very, although I wouldn't say they're, they're not chatty and they don't, they do definitely participate in conversation. They're much more careful with their words. They don't use a lot of words, much more sparse and measured. They wouldn't chat for hours. I mean, even I, I think of people who I would consider quite chatty and I see them maybe on a telephone and they will, you know, it's very much a, cursory conversation with a purpose and once the purpose is achieved the conversation ends whereas I could sit on the phone and chat for hours about nothing very much. But I recognize that idea that you can't believe how lucky you are to have this person beside you you know that idea that 
you know, as a young person, that kind of first recognition of comfort in, you know, just a physical presence of somebody who's with you, um, who isn't your parent, you know, like you've almost like, yes, I've done it. I've made it, I've broken out, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a parent, you know, it can be, yeah, someone that I am dating or whatever. It's that first, like, I don't know, maybe you leave home and you think I'm alone. I'm a real, my own person in the world. And that's that first foray into coupledom or self-determination that it comes with leaving home. I worry about this person who thinks, you know, the restaurant and the cake. And there's so much truth in this piece. You know, that idea that things aren't funny unless they're true, I think is absolutely right. And it has to be ugly and beautiful. There has to be something, you know, most things that are funny are sharp in some way, whether that's the ugliness or not. And it has to be perfectly crafted usually, you know, in order to witty or in order to be funny. And I think there's beauty in that. But I think we also have to recognize the parameters of the joke from, from life. Yeah, Otherwise, we can't relate to it. Although that cigarette butt in the top layer of sponge cake is pretty horrific. Imagine if... If that was your child's birthday cake. Yeah, and I guess it's, but it, it, okay, horrific at the time, but this is how funny things happen, right? Horrific at the time and funny later because it's just, there is the horror in it is what's so funny. So, you know, anything that's horrific at the time tends to be pretty hilarious when you have, when you get to retell the story. So, you know, so often when something horrific happens, you'll say, well, don't worry, you'll get years of mileage out of whatever it is that was funny. And it, you know, and it only becomes funny though when you decide that you can retell it. I think. Yeah. And then the advent of that phrase, is it too soon? You know, <laughs> can we laugh at this funny thing yet? And you frame it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And sometimes it is too soon. And then the end of the story we have to tackle, but I guess, you know, I can, I could sense that neither of us really wants to, cause it's, it's not how we want. I wouldn't, I don't want it to end that way with this person in their, on their own in a room, listening to people laugh outside and then laughing at something out of reach. It feels almost like its own fairy tale in the sense that it's sort of foreboding and a kind of warning around isolation. I don't know what you make of it. Yeah, I mean, I think I was quite, being me, trying to look for the hopeful in it, I was quite glad she'd got away from the monoslampic guy. And I was thinking of, you know, the, the paint samples and the, you know, starting again and papering over the cracks, as it were, and having the freedom to collect all the paint samples again that she did before and, it's her who gets to choose what she paints. But I think that's probably me trying to just dilute the sadness of her being in a single bed on her own, as you say, listening to other people laughing. Yeah, and there is this language around a hundred possible colours as if there are lots of roads open to her. And then one way to think about the thin walls isn't to think that she's ended up in a, you know, miserable, tiny space on her own, but that actually the outside world is getting closer to her. Yeah, you know, that she's and she can reach through. And that she's still finding the outside world funny. So I guess one way to see it is she's doing things on her own terms, you know, rather than having to be part of an outside world that she doesn't understand or engage with. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was going to say. She's still really very obviously engaging with that outside world and looking outwards, not necessarily turning her entire gaze inwards. Yeah, well, and also thrilled to observe without distraction makes me think, you know, the idea that she's, that's that last sentence, you laugh loudly, thrilled to observe without distraction. And partly, you know, one other way to see it is, you know, she's seeing that it's okay for her to be on her own. She's seeing the positive of not having to explain why she's laughing. You know, that sort of self-determination that comes with recognizing that you're enough without 
someone being beside you. So, you know, one way to look at it is that the person, the boy that she's fallen in love with is a distraction from recognizing her, you know, that she's a complete thing in herself. You know, although when you first read that, it's it feels quite dark. But the words that you've picked out, you know, possible, thrill, precious, there is a sprinkling of hope. And there's something about even the beginning of that, you know, everything is broken and you do not know how to fix anything. There's a kind of freedom in saying like, right, it's all broken. Like that's broken. I've broken it. So now what? Rather than being like, I'm desperately trying to fix everything. You know, I'm in a single bed. I'm on my own. Everything's broken. And now I've got a hundred different paint samples to choose from. What color do I want my life to be? I think I really resonate with that idea that you, you know, when you're on your own, the great thing about being on your own is that you get to choose what I always say is you make your own weather. Like, you know, and I guess that's a particularly British minded metaphor because, you know, we're so focused on the weather here. But that idea that, you know, you decide if it's going to be a sunny day or a rainy day. You're in charge of your own destiny. So for me, that's where she's coming from with the paint samples. She gets to decide what color her days and her walls and everything else is going to be. So there, we've turned it into a positive ending. Lots to talk about in that one. So thank you to Diz for, for sending that over to us. And I like the way the format and the structure of it, you'll, you'll be able to see it for yourself on our website, the way it's divided into sort of neat little almost chapters. And in fact, it's called A Story in Nine Rooms. So... Thank you, Diz, for that. And thank you, too, to Claire Askew for letting us have her poem, Weatherall, for today. Are you happy to read it? Yeah, I've got it. Weatherall. We're walking the village with August turning brown, bulbs of honeysuckle spilling their filaments, summer's fairy lights clawed from trees. My mother's giving me a garden tour, naming the known plants closing her hand around rosemary to wear a bangle of its smell. She looks small, ducking under Budlea, shrunk somehow in its violet backlight, as we wonder aloud if the butterflies are dead, the quiet thistles listening, birds' nests kicked out of the hedges. I don't get these gardens, these fed lawns with beds of hydrangea, Pansies, the color of headache, sun-faded gnomes. Like poems, shouldn't what's grown be useful? Beyond the ditch, the wind combs the dock. There's chickweed living rough, the toolpath dandelion trolling its clocks, though it was round up only weeks ago. My mother opens her hand so I can smell her ghost of rosemary. It's gone, like the best of this long year, but I don't say. Let her put her hand to my face, so later, when everything begins to die, I can remember a garden did grow here once, and my mother loved it, enough to bring me here, enough to teach me all its names. I remember reading this poem the first time and thinking, for some reason, of the garden as kind of rooms of her mother's house and her mother showing them to her. So I think that's why we paired this poem, is that idea of, you know, the, the garden almost being a, ro a room of home for her. And I think as well, you know, I have very, very strong connotations with things that remind me of the house that I grew up in as a child, that I, I can relate to the connections that Claire is making with memories in the garden. So I recognise that similarity of ideas that 
things in a place can really connect you to that place when you see those things out of context later on. Yeah. And also for me, it's partly about that recognition, a bit like in the story of, you know, you recognize it from your childhood. She'll know these things matter to her mother because she'll have grown up with them. But also suddenly she's an adult. You know, she gets to say, finally, as an adult, I don't get these gardens. You know, I think we should have things that are useful rather than, you know, pansies, the color of headache. And I think for me, it's as much about recognizing home in her mother's garden as recognizing what she sees as not necessarily the failings, but her own take on it now, which is to say, I've grown up and left home. And I can't bear to tell my mother it's that. You know, she's she's different in the sense that she's, you know, saying, I don't say, it's gone, but I don't say, let her put her hand to my face, which almost choke, chokes me up as a mum, you know. And I think that is a sign of growing up, isn't it? Where you begin to be able to look outwards and that for it not just to be the relationship, not just to be your mother taking care of you, you beginning to take care or or be thoughtful towards your mother. Yeah, it's almost the stage beyond the one we were talking about. You know, that idea when you grow up and you go off to to work or study, further study or whatever, and you get your job or, you know, whatever it is that that involves you leaving home. And you think, I am my own person. I can put whatever I want in my fridge. (laughs) I remember that being a huge thing. But then I think, as you say, there's there's almost a further a lack of resistance or a covering up of that resistance that comes with a recognition that mothers are people too, you know, and actually I'm not going to allow that comfort back in of letting my mother mother me, which is not to say it's full circle, but it's definitely moved beyond that I'm an independent person of my own um, ideas. She's not saying to her mother, oh, for goodness sake, I hate sun-faded gnomes. She's letting it go, which I think takes a lot of maturity because certainly at some ages you want to express your individuality rather than um, being confident enough in it to keep it at bay and let your mother be herself. There's a kindness in this poem, I think, that maybe isn't in Diz's story. I think the thing I love about this poem as well is that those little, there's so many little um, phrases that just stay with me. I love the description of honeysuckle as summer's fairy light. Um, and the bangle of the smell of rosemary. And as you mentioned, the pansies, the colour of headache. And I love the chickweed living rough. And there's just lots in it that kind of just makes me smile. And I think that's, you know, just echoing the kindness that you've just mentioned. There's a gentleness about it, isn't there? I think when I first read this poem, and it would have been years ago, I knew at the time that Claire was gardening quite a lot and growing her, you know, various bits of food. But I also know she was at the time, and I think still is quite a forager. So quite interested, uh, probably like me, in things, growing things or finding things that are useful. So I love that um, idea, like poems shouldn't what's grown be useful. And particularly because she sticks the like poems on the beginning that, you know, and and many might say poems are the least useful thing uh, that one can be doing with their time. And I would object to that. So I'm grateful to Claire for sliding that one in um, while we're talking about, you know, dock and chickweed and dandelion leaves. Thank you, Claire, for sliding those little those little ideas into that poem when we, when we weren't looking. And for letting us have, have your poem to podcast today as yeah. well. I think we should leave it there. They're really interesting, both of them. And we recommend that you find them and read them again. Maybe read them together and tell us if you think they connect. You can find them both on our website in the Unbound section at openbookreading.com. So I think that's it for us today. Thanks so much for having us in your ears and coming on this journey with us. We look forward to being with you again this time next month.